Dispatch Publishing presents Little Flower, written by Ted Oswald and performed by Zara Jane Naqui. Six. I have told you my name was not always Immaculata. Sisters was not always Shanti. In 1956, in her 17th year, Sister Shanti was still Hira Chain. She passed her days in a convent school in Delhi. She admired the nuns, most of them anyway. There was a portly French sister, Sister Angelique, who lacked patience but was quick-witted. open and honest and joyful this spoke volumes to hira hira excelled in her studies maths and english were her favorites music was a passion this makes her mother very proud it makes her father very sad hira loved the daily walk home with her girlfriends when they could get away with it the boys from a nearby school troubled hira but worry not Hira troubled the boys. Her affections were inconstant. Her romantic infatuations turning over almost daily. She was an only child, wished for a brother. There was one before she was born, dead after two days. Her arrival three years later was met with much rejoicing, and she was loved deeply from the start. Her parents never attempted another child for the staggering fear of potential loss. Daddy, her father, was a stern bureaucrat in the Ministry of Railways, made of imperious stuff like in the Indian Administrative Service, and an old order Anglophile. He wore tweed coats even in beastly heat, only drank English gin. had friends from abroad bring him the newest graham green novels questionably ranked english composers talis and bird above mozart and beethoven he had always dreamt of study in the former imperial motherland but on reaching middle age knew that ship had long sailed her mother mummy from a successful punjabi business family was an amateur singer and accomplished sitarist also stern her infatuations with the west tended towards continental europe but the second world war dampened her affections for all things german and french except their music it was from her and her alone that hira's own extraordinary musical aptitude had sprung yet she no longer sang or played not since her son passed away her brother died fighting for the crown her country ripped in two her life moved from one bout of depression to the next the family migrated from amritsar to kolkata then calcutta in 1947 when partition came sectarian strife the only explanation that needs saying they arrived with their ambassador full of possessions and empty of petrol Their most valuable things had been stolen or abandoned in their swift flight, but ties in the new independent government remained intact. Strings were pulled, favors called in, a job and an apartment were secured, 
as was a place at an elite Catholic school for Hira. A Western education was to be had for this one, Daddy said. Indeed, Mummy said, indeed. On this day, sitting around the dinner table and partway through a meal of curried lentils, her father asked Hira what she wished to become. He revisited this question on occasion. She laid down her fork, dabbed at her mouth with a napkin. Her first answer, a pianist. Her mother smiled. Her father tuttered. Too impractical, he said. Hira sat. She thought. Her second answer, a jurist. He smiled. That's good, very good. Exams are coming up. Go to UK, maybe. She pondered over the proposition. No, she stated definitively. I will stay here, closer to home, to you both. He grumbled something about missed opportunity, but he loves her for this. They went on to finish their meal, and Hira felt a stab of regret. She was an honest, guileless girl, smiled freely, did her homework, harboured no secrets. As fleeting as this moment was, it stayed with her. Why, one might ask. Because in appeasing her Hindu parents, she failed to mention that she wonders if she is meant to become a Catholic nun. Go back to Old Delhi, to GB Road, to the darkened stairwell with the chain running along the wall, to quota number 201, and knock. Step in. Mita has worked the entire night. It is agony between her legs. Wisps of what could have been swirl about. Her space to call her own. Freedom to amble, holding her head up high in the streets. Her loving husband. Lack of want. The line between inside and outside her body unbroken unless she allowed. Two regulars complain when Mita will not accommodate their requests. These men, like so many, arrive with heads full of internet pornography, demanding reenactments. Adiba has to throw them out, refunds in hand. Gina fears her star attraction may be fading. She has seen such ruinous declines before. These girls are kept in place by fear of Adiba's fists and the great unknown outside the quarter's walls. Maybe Mita will have a child and all will be well, Gina hopes. A child is a sort of insurance policy for pimps like her. They are a bother, of course, but a whore with a crying open mouth to feed is most pliant. But wait, that's right, Gina recalls. Mita has an inverted, what's it? A faulty some such, a cystic thingy. A child she cannot, not ever, not a chance, bear. And since the great unknown doesn't appear to deter her, evidenced by the other evening's flight, the fists will have to do. Come here, Francis, don't worry. No one is indecent. Mita is just stirring, checking her swelling in the mirror. She dresses. Rifat is already up and steeping tea and baking chapatis while smoking a 502 pataka bidi, certain not to help her health. Mita eats two pieces to settle her stomach. 
Rifa gently warns Meeta not to be too disappointed if her investigation does not progress today. Meeta huffs, thanks her for the food and returns to gather her things. Jinnah blocks her at the door. Meeta wears a shalwa kameez, the same from the other night, and sunglasses that hide her blackened eye. Not a trace of makeup. It surprises Jinnah how she resembles an upright citizen, a university student, a bank employee, a housewife, someone from a good family. The inability to see her eyes through the dark lenses unnerves Jinnah. Be back by midnight, the old woman says. Of course, Mita holds out her hand. My advance, she says. Jinnah smiles, places 500 rupees in her hand. Added to your debts. Mita rolls her eyes. Adiba is already on his feet but looking tired. He didn't sleep, choosing instead to watch a Predator film marathon, followed by a few hours on Grand Theft Auto 3. Mita is already down the stairs. Hold on to her arm, Gina tells Adiba, like a bitch on a lead. He nods follows Meeta down the narrow passage and is delivered into the world of light below. Come on, Meeta urges, tugging against his meaty grip. Don't slow me down. Adiba sniffs, snorts, blows his nose on his sleeve. He continues at his same unruffled pace. Meeta feels her senses sharpen. The air is clearer than in the quarter. The light gives her vision a new acuity. If only it could sharpen her plan. Despite much reflection, it is undeveloped. She decides to start asking around. There is a pair of older touts at the base of the staircase. She checks if they saw a man in a black suit the night before last. She hoped the rarity of the sight would have stuck. The women are surprised Mita is even on the street, but Adiba's looming presence explains it. They answer with slight incredulity. Hundreds of men have come and gone in the last two nights. To the best of their recollection, no suits. The road is already crowded with men. A few go up and come down, but mostly they visit the respectable shops on the bottom level to find a motor gasket or a spool of wire or pause in the shade of a nearby people tree and talk with the chart vendor. She knows the shops would have been closed when Ram appeared on the road, so the owners would be of no help. She also knows they wouldn't talk to her even if they did know something. They have a gift, treating the parallel disreputable trade as if it is invisible. The pair continue up and down the block, Mita checking with other touts and pimps. Nothing. After only an hour, she wonders if the evil eye is fixed squarely upon her in these pursuits. What if someone had seen him? Does she think they'll just hand over an address? What a stupid girl, thinking she can write this wrong. She reaches the spot where she and Ram climbed into the rickshaw. The memory of their flight is already blurring. Standing there for a moment, eyes closed, she replays everything that happened. The pursuer. Ram was troubled as they rushed from GB and jumped in the rickshaw. She pictures Ram's face. 
He was terrified, but not of Adiba. She steps back to the first night Ram found her some four months before. He wasn't dressed differently than any other men then, though he was more courteous. He was tentative. It was a slow weeknight and all the girls were bored, assembled in the quarter entryway and listening to All India Radio, waiting for the next customer to arrive, line them up, look them over and make his selection. Ram entered alone. Many times customers came in pairs or groups. Gina greeted him warmly from her chair, inviting him to choose among her choice gems, her beautiful daughters. Each stood there with wide smiles. Their act was not because they wanted to sleep with a customer, but because this one was young and handsome and well-kempt, and in a word, uncommon. Prime boyfriend material, as Deepti would say. A young man who might become a regular and patronise his favourite and buy her phone credit or makeup or biscuits and maybe, just maybe, stoke her dreams into a flame. Ram said that he had come looking for the Mujra dancer. He heard there was an accomplished one here. Of course, Jina smiled. Mita swelled with pride and stepped forward. He looked awestruck. Jina whispered into Ram's ear and he scrounged around in his pocket for the price without looking away from Mita. When Jina was satisfied, Mita spoke. Come with me. She led him to her room, flicked on the tube light. He was momentarily stunned by the collage of posters, unsure where to focus. The pair did not speak. Mita seated him on her floor. She took off her outer shalwa kameez to reveal a full-bosomed choli. She resembled the women in the images lining the walls. Going to her CD player, she pressed play. A thumbry burst from the speakers. She was transfixed, taken up. He paid and she danced, and he paid more, and she danced with more fervour. Finally, she ended and left the room with a grand flourish, as if closing a performance before a grand Mughal audience. Jinnah came in and explained that she would return after a brief rest. The anticipation made Ram's skin tingle. Jinnah opened her palm. He paid. Though there was sex, no intimacy was exchanged that night. Mita did not offer him her name. He did not offer his. Mita had no reason to expect him back and was bemused when he came. She had not tried to bait a hook and wasn't looking for a new patron. She was already juggling three other men, two of obvious means. But there he was the next night, ready to pay a sizable sum of money to pass the night with her. After a short-lived passion on his part, they settled into a conversation that lasted hours. Timid Ram had disappeared. She was introduced to a new, confident Ram with dreams the size of her own. Mita hears a husky whisper in her ear. She's pulled back to where she stands in the present. Looking for some excitement? Mita opens her eyes. It is Latika, a didi from the neighbouring quarter. You remember her, right, Francis? Get away from me, bitch, Mita mutters. I'm in no mood. Latika gives a mocking laugh. 
He's dead. Ram is dead, so shut your mouth. Latika freezes. Shock touches her face, but gives way to a wry smile. Is that so? Come and go, they do. Come and go. She pinches Mita. You never touched him, you whore. Ha! <laughs> I gave that poor fool the best nights of his life. Must have been... She looked up, trying to recall. Just last week? He wouldn't. Not so recently. He would. He didn't. He did. Ram told me all kinds of things he said he couldn't tell another soul. Meeta lunges at her, scratches her face while spewing invectives. Latika shrieks and gives her a punch to the stomach. Adiba soon steps between them and subdues Meeta in his flabby arms. He went to Pinku, Latika says, panting. After a fight, asked him for another girl, a better girl. So Ram came to me. I'll kill you if I see you again, Meeta shouts. A tittering crowd gathers and gruff shop owners tell the pair to stop disrupting business. Latika makes an obscene gesture at Meeta and climbs the stairs. Meeta wriggles out from Adiba's grip and wipes tears away as she rushes down the street. Adiba trails close behind. Only a week ago? She tries to remember, but evenings blend together so easily and the days of the week seldom matter but for the TV schedules they herald. There was an argument, she remembers. He had come to her, as he did every few days, but was troubled, very drunk. He hadn't brought her any gifts, had called her selfish. She balked. What happened next made her realise she was not particularly good at talking things over. The volume escalated, quickly. Get out! she told him, for good. Once he was gone, she feared he would do as commanded. He returned the next night in a cloud of gloom. She assumed his guilt was regret over the fight. Maybe it was because he had gone to Latika. Maybe it was something else altogether. That his eternal vows of love had so quickly unravelled and he slipped into another's bed disquiets Mita. It isn't the sex itself. That has almost no meaning. It is his discounting one of the only things she is able to give. She turns to blaming herself for all of it. His drunkenness, depression, death. In a moment of unusual clarity, she worries she cannot help but spoil good things. She kicks that thought to the curb. She needs to find Pinku, the tout Latika mentioned. Don't let her get too far ahead of us, Francis. We don't want to lose her. It shouldn't be too hard to find Pinku. He has quite the reputation. Up the staircase, at his favourite quarter, number 158, Mita frowns after checking. Apparently not. Despite Pinku's young age and small stature, he is notorious, a product of GB, made in, made for, this place. He harasses, promotes, drinks, assaults, robs, gets high, whenever the inclinations strike. A fish in water. Hmm. Nor is he taking chai at his usual dhabba either. 
Franco is often treated to free sessions with girls in order to incentivize his touting. But word was he has paused for a time after contracting a nasty venereal disease. I can only imagine what new strain of virus is breeding in that boy, and I don't think it's wrong to call him that even though he's reached the age of majority. Mita inquires again. The other young male touts, preoccupied with their mobiles, tell her to get back to her chodai kannakota before they make her. She curses them and continues on her way. Our young thug is known for his memory, rather extraordinary, in fact, and he maintains a complex catalogue of customers and their preferred quarters and girls with remarkable clarity. Mita hopes it will prove useful for her needs, should she find him. Acha? Good. It appears Mita and Adiba have found their man. No, no, you must look down, Pope. That's right. Blending into the refuse at the edge of this fetid trash hillock. Meet the illustrious Pinku. Mita nudges him with a toe. He stirs grudgingly. What? I need your help, Pinku. Pay me now. In a few hours, maybe I can do something for you. It's just a question I'm having. He tries his best to avoid the light, but the sun is at its peak and bathing the streets without mercy. She offers her sunglasses and he puts them on, giving an appreciative grunt. Mita, what are you doing on the street? Trying to run again? Her eyes flick the Adiba and back. No. Your eye. A customer been to work on you. Her fingers rise to her bruises. Again, an unconscious glance at Adiba. The lunkhead is poking a scabby dog resting on the heap. Pinku yawns and puffs his cheeks, blowing out a noxious blend of booze and garlic. How are things going? I need help. Your help. Gina let you out. His non-sequitur annoys Mita. Ha! Huh? Yes! Look, two nights ago, Ram was here. That your guy? He closes his eyes tightly as he tries to recall. You're dead guy, right? I heard. Yeah, him I saw. He arches his back, throws his arms out, stretching, gives a hoot. He and I almost got into it when the chodu bloody fucker brushed me off. Dressed like a prick, coming down here like he's something is not. Mita stares at him for half a minute. His grimy sweater and hair's curls cemented in place by dirt and God only knows what. She rips her glasses from his face. Pinku rolls his eyes as he moans. A hand over his face, he says, What do you want? I have important, busy things. Mita flicks his nose. Did you see anything else? Ram was scared. I realized only later. I thought it was nerves due to this lump of ghee. Her thumb points to Adiba, but we were running from someone else. Whoever it was chased after and killed him, I know it. Pinku's interest is kindled. There was a Gandu, in a suit, around the same time. Gods above, I hate pricks, but ones in suits? Especially. I thought he was your guy. That same puffed, stupid hair like Salman Khan. But this one wasn't so good looking. A part of said Chodu's ear was missing. He had a scar on his cheek. 
I almost got him fighting with him too. Nothing I like less than someone rejecting my most kindly offered services. Staring at his sky maybe didn't help so much. Mita's forehead screws up. Her lips purse. The description matches no one she can recall, nor anyone Ram talked about. Picturing him in her mind's eye, the description conjures a bristling thug in a tight-fitting suit hardened by a hundred fights. Of course Ram, her gentle, soft, sensitive Ram, would have been scared by a villain like this. You've been a help, Pinku. Thank you. Now fuck off back to your rubbish. Be careful, bitch, or I'll send a fatty, flea-bitten chodu your way, Pinku says. Another adiva. He smiles. Mita smiles too. Adiba grimaces, leaves the dog alone and lumbers off towards the mouth of the alley. Mita soon overtakes him. Progress no, she says. Maybe to Adiba, maybe to no one. Her mind races, her feet follow its pace and it is half a minute before she stops amid the pedestrian traffic and realises she isn't sure where she's going. The police. The idea isn't new, but everyone knows the police on GB are as dangerous as the mafia. Still, they could know things impossible for her to ascertain. Maybe they would have Ram's property taken for evidence, or maybe his address. Ram never let her visit his home, even on the few nights when she was permitted to leave. He said it was too far. All the way in Gogayon. Gogayon, if you aren't familiar, Francis, is a newish city to Delhi South where foreign companies set up shop, the very hub of rising India's telecom and business process outsourcing, BPO, industries. Correct, Pope. India's famous call centres. Ram bragged about his place in a new army of 900,000 employees, heeding the call to, well, take calls. To Mita, Gogayon might as well have been a bounteous land out of Vedic myth. Out of nowhere comes the image of the train resting atop Ram, the multitudes huddling around, hoping for a splash of gore. She shudders. The decision is made. Adiba, she says, we go to see the police. He tenses, but she is already off, aimed at the tiny blue and maroon police post near Ajmeri Gate. She knocks first to no answer. The wooden cabin is windowless. It has a loudspeaker. Painted along its top in English is the unsettling police motto, With you, for you, always. Mita wonders if it is even occupied. She pushes the door. To her surprise, it creaks open. The constable, Singh is his name if you recall, sits in the dark watching a small TV. A desk fan blows directly on him, but he sweats straight through his green and khaki uniform. Adiba waits in the doorway, turned towards the street. What is it? Singh says this without pulling his eyes away from his programme. She does not know this squat man by name, but recognises him from when she looks down on GB from the window in number 201, and he creates as much conflict as he ends. I'm here to lodge an 
F.I.R., she whispers. To open her police case? Her wandering eyes skip past three garlanded portraits of gods on the wall and land upon the large stick resting against his desk. I'm eating. This is obvious. His fingers, pulled out from a styrofoam container, drip with curry. He forces a wad of dipped naan in his mouth. Mita doubts and knew the wisdom of coming here. It is a murder. I know who killed a man, Sahib. Sing, he says, running his tongue over his teeth. He finally pulls himself from his Dadagiri Unlimited quiz show to run his eyes up and down Mita. He takes up a soiled rag from his feet to wipe his right hand, then sweeps away the detritus caught in his handlebar moustache. He takes up a pencil. Name? Mita. Victim's name? Ram. He looks at her impatiently. Surname? She blushes. I don't know it. The body? Already gone, picked up. He was killed at the railway station, n night before last. Singh scribbles a little, then looks up. The one cut up by the train. Is that who you mean? A mess, that was. Mita scowls. Why are you coming now? I just heard information about the one who did the deed, and I need the victim's, Ram's, address. Constable Singh picks at his teeth with his pinky's long fingernail. He shrugs. Relationship to the victim? We were to be married. His look turns to scepticism. Girlfriend, Singh writes chuckling, and you do not know his name. She doesn't appreciate his mocking tone. Ah, why would you report anything here? You're one of them. He signals with a grand sweep towards GB. Aren't you? Take your sunglasses off. That's right. Let me see your face. Nice bruise. And who's this sad sack with you? Your new boyfriend. Constable Singh tells Adiba to turn around. Adiba does. Why, that's Adiba. He turns back to Mita. You're one of Jinnas. Hey. Hey! He throws a chicken bone at Adiba, which he sidesteps. Did I tell you you could turn away from me, you imbecile? Did I? Adiba's eyes narrow. He closes the door and stares into space, just above Constable Singh's head. Idiot, Constable Singh says. Fool, he curses. With just the flickering light from the TV lighting the room, Constable Singh's eyes glint. I'm sure a file has already been opened about this case. Let me call. He holds out his hand. What? Mita asks. Rupees, give them here. For what? For the phone call to our central station and the case opening fee and the paper and file folder you've already made me waste if there's another FIR open. There are expenses for everything. I'm not giving shit to do my job. So you need to pay. Of course he'd say that, she thinks. How much? She reaches for her purse. Her very small, very light purse. Cost too high. Bureaucracy, he says, shrugging. What can be done? 
I only have a little. His eyes narrow, then widen with the birth of a new idea. I feel for you, I do, losing your betrothed. I've not once heard a sadder story. Her heart leaps. He stands up and goes to the door, opens it, shoes Adiba out, and us too. Constable Singh locks the door from inside. Mita watches all this with deepening dread. Sick man. If you must listen, Francis, if your curiosity simply overwhelms you to know what happens next, put your ear up against the wall. I can make the call, you can hear Singh say. Find out anything and everything about the case. Hand it over to you. They'll have his address, most surely. No fee, waived. But for me to do my job, you'll just need to do what you do best. He glanced at his paperwork. Mita. Do your job, Mita. Do what you do best. 7. I'm sorry to pull you away, but you didn't need to see what followed, and I didn't need to show it to you. This world, Francis, this world. Please, walk with me. I detect you need a rest. Lord knows I do. Lodi Garden is a refuge. I am not able to come here often, so every chance to retreat here, I take. It's an oasis in the heart of Delhi's madness. We've missed the morning rush. The yoga class devotees and past prime men in tracksuits discussing business. Note the children from the elite international school at play on a field trip. The strolling old Sikh couple, hands held circumspect behind their bodies. Just look at all the greenery of this place. New life, new flowers, amid the ruins of tombs hundreds of years old, built by Muslim rulers and graffitied by generation after generation. Abdel Hashwan, Yogesh and Priyanka, a reminder of permanence and decay, life and death. Ah, note too the marauding pack of macaques. The monkeys have descended on a loaf of white bread, a guest intended for the colour-flecked pigeons of this place, Spectators encircle them at a safe distance, watching the mothers share with babies. Males fight with males. Look, look, they eat only the white centres, leaving behind the crust. The pickiness of God's creatures. They're stirred up now, making too much noise, growing too wild. This is unacceptable. Monkeys are a curiosity but there are always stories following them of rabid bites and stolen possessions. A man was reported to have been frightened off his balcony by his illegal pet monkey. Dead! A laughing matter until they're not. The partners arrive. You hear the motorcycle before you see it riding along the park's concrete paths. How is a motorcycle allowed in the park? A special dispensation. Note the passenger behind the driver and it may help explain. That's right, an enormous monkey. In a flash, before the bike is even parked, our monstrous langur friend leaps off and dashes at the pack of smaller monkeys. 
the driver pulls out a long cudgel and is soon reinforcing his companion's efforts to terrorize and scatter the pack. They are an elite team, this pair, and know their work well. Once dispersed, they return to the bike and strike calm and collected poses. Another call comes in. A trio of monkeys has infiltrated a megamole. The mercenaries are back on the bike, a treat passed to the langur, who looks self-satisfied, as if to say, nothing to see here, all in a day's work. Showing you this may seem a simple amusement, Francis, but you will see this is no monkey business. At such a time and such a place, this duo will reappear and lives will never be the same. But it is not only for a bit of foreshadowing that I introduce you to Lodi Garden. I wanted you to see this place, Pope, to take in its obvious beauty after we've been exposed to so much rot, to find momentary rest amid the rows of little flowers in their silent praise of the sun, to look over at those benches where an important scene took place not so long ago. In 2007, in her 68th year, Sister Shanti encountered Ram in his prime. She arrived in Lodi Garden and sat right there. It was a Thursday morning, the day normal MC routine is broken for rest, prayer and confession. She rushed through her individual meetings with the postulants to keep her appointment with Ram. She shouldn't have. Though Sister was here at Ram's invitation, he was late as usual. She shivered, tucking in her cardigan-covered arms against Delhi's winter cold, and wondered if she was wasting her time. On seeing Ram approach, all frustration vanished. He smiled, and she smiled in return, pride swelling within her. She hugged the boy, really a man now, pinched his cheek. They dispensed with normal greetings, barreled through small talk. Before you say anything, sister said to him, I have something to tell you. Ram listened. She said that there was still hope. She had heard the headmaster's version of the story and had convinced him to allow Ram to return to his job as a janitor at St. Xavier's school. What had happened, regardless of the culprit, had been smoothed over, she told him. They knew he was not involved. Ram smiled, thanked her, patted her knee. But I've already found a better opportunity, he said, at a call centre in Gurgayon. Sister was mildly surprised. His English was only so-so. It was only then that she noticed his elevated style, his new look. He went on to describe living with a co-worker in a nice apartment, the surprisingly good pay, the high life he now led. Not sure what to say, she defaulted to half-hearted warnings against vice and its dangers. He accepted the admonitions patiently. It dawned on her. There was something more beyond the outward. An air of contentedness. You found someone, she said. A young woman. I can see it. He smiled, looked as if he'd say something, then kept it in. I only want the best for you, Ram. You can tell me all. No judgment here. I know. 
They watched a gardener toiling at a flower bed. I know, he repeated. Ram finally broke the ensuing silence, telling her why he asked her here. It is not so unrelated to St. Xavier's, he said. I wanted to tell you myself. I want you to know you can trust me now. Really. He looked far off at a pair of tombs amid a hovering cloud of mist. She touched his arm and urged him on in his telling. He said he reported for work one afternoon about a month ago, about two months into his new job as janitor. It was difficult for Ram because he was just barely older than some of the boys at the school and they were from some of Delhi's most privileged families. They treated him like scum. On the day in question, he was in the rear part of the school with Mr. Banerjee, the prematurely grey-headed custodian who was explaining how to reset the electrical system in the event of a surge. They heard worried shouting come from a recessed corner at the back of the school grounds, not far from the circuit breaker box. Mr. Banerjee and Ram ran towards the commotion and found an underclassman on the ground, apparently unconscious amid a group of five upper-class men. It was apparent there was a ringleader, Krishan. He told a stupid story, utmost nonsense, Ram said. The boy on the ground, called Kapoor, had tripped and fallen, Krishan said, and the group was there to help him. Mr. Banerjee approached Kapoor and realised he was bleeding from the head. In a rage, Mr. Banerjee said he would report them all to the headmaster. Krishan turned dark. He threatened Mr. Banerjee and Ram with all manner of problems if they reported what they saw and explained how his father, a government minister, would see they lost their jobs and find the police at their backs. He reached into his wallet and gave them each 1,000 rupees before telling them to leave. Ram watched all this unfold in shock and followed Mr. Banerjee's lead. At the moment I took the money because that's what Banerjee did, Ram said. If I told the truth, Krishan would terrorise me. Banerjee might turn on me. I know how these things work, how those of us at the bottom are blamed for the sins of those at the top. So you quit. I did. Sister sat with this for a time. Have you heard what happened to the Kapoor boy? Ram shook his head. A week ago, the poor child died, a cracked skull. He was pushed from the second floor while at school. Mr. Banerjee was arrested on an anonymous tip, beaten by police and ultimately released. But he lost his job. Twenty years' service, wiped out. Ram skipped a breath. That's terrible. He turned inwards. What was I supposed to do, sister? What was I supposed to do? He asked again. Sister shrugged. Make another way, she said. Ram left soon after, clearly rattled by the news. Sister waved farewell as he disappeared into the mist, burdened by what he had just learned. After he was far off, she chided herself for once again forgetting to ask his phone number and the far more significant omission, telling him she loved him and was proud of him. It was already too late to follow.
already too late. Sister feels foolish wandering the streets with a small suitcase, bumping against her leg with every other step. She glances over her shoulder periodically, scans her surroundings. To you and me, this is a curiosity. No fellow nun accompanies her. She reads the business card in her hand and asks yet another person to direct her to Shaji and Sons Antiques and Metal Recycling. The man, a tailor, sits on the ground cross-legged before a sewing machine. He points down the lane. You promise, you know, you're the fifth person I've asked. My uncle can't handle more misdirection. Most assuredly, he says. Go until you arrive at the tea shop. Just two stalls down and you'll find it. She gives a grateful, tight-lipped nod and pushes on. Weariness tugs at her limbs. Sleep eluded her last night. Sister Nipa made a fuss when Shanti didn't eat after returning home from the crematorium. Sister forgot to run the nebulizer to treat little Bimrao and his asthma. When trying to play music for the children, she could summon nothing. They all sat in the piano room as she stared at the keys and sheet music, her mind bouncing between pain and sadness, caught in that crematorium under the Kashmir Gate flyover. Her childhood home, her recital hall, the imagined Vatican office that was the source of her other letter. When she finally did play, no joy ensued. She needed a new song, but improvisation was not her gift. The 88 keys before her and their infinite potential combinations were overwhelming. She rose this morning as she always did, mass and breakfast and newspaper and coffee and small tasks in the office. But it wasn't long before she stole away, packed a case, wrote a brief note and slipped out the front gate after dispatching the watchman on an invented errand. She looks up. A sign above the shop proves the tailor was right. Shaji and Sons Antiques and Metal Recycling, where metal antiques are recycled. An eyebrow does sister raise. She sets down her case and leans against a Mercedes of recent provenance parked obnoxiously in the middle of the lane. She has a small hanky tucked away to dab just below the edge of the sari across her forehead. Collected again, she takes up the case and steps into the shop. It is dingy. A bulky electronic scale rests on the floor. Incense burns. A radio in the corner belts out Quranic surahs. There, amid the clutter of dust-covered, lustreless pitches and pots and bells, is an old bearded man wearing a skullcap and kaftan, happily asleep. Are you Shaji or one of the sons? Sister blurts. He starts in his chair, though not at all perturbed. Madam, he smiles as he stands. Madam, I am Shaji himself. He looks her up and down. Head covered? Yes. Muslim? He notes the small crucifix pinned near her shoulder. No. Buying or selling? He asks, still smiling. Neither. His visage clouds, but only for a moment. No matter, no matter. Guests are most welcome, especially one of our distinguished age-matching or 
slightly younger than my own. He passes her his chair and she obliges. Out of nowhere, he claps. Of course, your sari, your affect, you are one of Teresa's. She gives a curt nod. I knew it. I've always appreciated your example, your care for the poor. We may disagree about Allah, but your devotion, it speaks to me. He says this as he digs in a back room for another chair. Your name, madam. Shanti, Sister Shanti. Would you like tea, Sister Shanti? Surely. He pokes his head out into the street and hollers. Two chais! He turns back to her with a pleasant smile, eyes alight, and takes a seat, knitting his fingers in his lap. Nearly her entire adult life, she has been met by one of two reactions. Bemused confusion or excessive praise. This man knows nothing of her, really. In this particular moment, that appeals greatly. Mr. Shahji, I thank you for your hospitality. It's nothing, my pleasure, the foundation of my businesses. Right. A subsidiary reads your card. She produces it, all creased and dirtied. You have other businesses? I do. Antiques and metals are only one of my trades. Pharmaceutical manufacturing, software development. You look sceptical, sister. Oh, forgive me, picturing this small shop sandwich between those ventures. Achya, you're correct, of course. The sons of Shaji and sons share your opinion. They're on the show nowadays. I'm in retirement. I'm keeping this shop for purely sentimental reasons. The chai arrives, brought on a tray by a small boy. She takes in his grubby face, his wide eyes scarring from a cleft palate, but he immediately hides from her gaze. He reminds her of Ram upon their first meeting, timid and afraid. She takes a sip of the tea too soon and scalds her tongue. I'm boring you, Mr. Shaji says. No, forgive me. My mind travelled for a moment. For purely sentimental reasons. Go on. This was my first shop. My family left the Punjab during partition, came to Delhi with just the clothes on our backs and faith in our hearts. Not so different from my own story. Is it now? Well, my father started this shop, though I was the one who saw it grow. Too difficult to part with. One can only sit at home for so long unoccupied. All of those crying grandchildren and squabbling daughters-in-law. Better turn up here. Quieter. He smiles. Are there customers? Few, but profit isn't everything, is it? And none would surely agree there. Sister nods out of politeness. I love my family, of course, though I worry what our wealth is breeding, the opposite of virtues. Vices, Sister Shanti says. Exactly. Ah, but look what I've fallen into. What do you Catholics call it, eh? Confession. She nods. So, now that I've told you my story, and since you're not buying or selling... May I ask what brings you here? Sister sips again from her glass, despite its undiminished temperature. 
I wonder if you knew a young man. He mattered very much to me. Ram, Ram Kumar, he is no more. Mr. Shaji shifts in his chair. Ram, I know him, knew him, I suppose. A, a good boy, tricky, but a good young man. The conversation lapses. The droning of the Quran fills the open air. Mr. Shaji's mobile rings mercifully and he pulls out an expensive-looking brick of a thing. Not now, he says brusquely. A visitor. He hangs up, gulps his tea. What happened? Sister's eyes glisten. Someone threw him onto the railway tracks two nights ago. He was crushed. Mr. Shaji is horrified. First, I wish to know why this happened, Sister Shanti says. Second, I intend to see whoever did it held responsible. I am most appreciating this new sister. Mr. Shaji leans in. But I am lost. How did you come to be here? Sister puckers her lips. I went to his cremation. The two items they were able to turn over to me were a crinkled ticket with the name of a girl. Mr. Shaji looks at the name on the profit paper and shrugs. And the business card of this establishment. A mystery, Mr. Shaji says. Ram was a simple delivery boy. I hired him on a day I was in the shop. Another had just absconded with the goods and I was most vexed. And then he came around. Ram, looking for work. In my anger, I was going to tell him to bugger off. But his eyes held something. An intensity. Yes, an intensity. I knew he was a serious one. That he would do what he said he would do. I liked him right away. Trusted him. It was back in, I don't know, March, February. I, I didn't see him much since I'm not here so often. But he did well. On time, responsible, though he quit abruptly. Strange, I've not seen him in, what, three months? Maybe four? I hadn't heard from him in a long time, Sister Shanti says. The better part of a year. When I last saw him, he told me he was well, that he had a regular job. It was so, with a technology firm, BPO, Aha, most strange sister. Trying to impress you, I suppose. I was, she continues. He looked well. Past boyhood, a step into manhood. Understand there were so many moments in his growing up where I feared for him. Mr. Shaji sits, unsure what to say. Did you have any information about his whereabouts? Sister finally asks, where he lived, I mean. If my search comes to nothing, I'd like to at least find the girl he was involved with, in case she doesn't know what's become of him. Specifically, no. Mr. Shaji strokes his beard, closes his eyes, lost in some deep concentration. But my driver, he picked him up once or twice. Call him, I will. He can take you there. You can ask around. If he was still living at the same place, maybe you're in luck. 
A bright smile comes to sister's face before she dims it. She finishes the tea as Mr. Shaji commences an animated conversation in Punjabi over the phone. She steps into the street and looks at the shop. She can picture Ram rummaging through this old metal, coming and going, finding dignity in his work. Still, she wonders why he felt the need to lie about what he was doing, to be someone he was not. A tear threatening to drop pulls back. She blinks it away, notices they have had a visitor all along, the tea boy lingering just out of their view. The pair stare at each other for a moment before sister's face softens. Hello, she says in Hindustani. The child wishes to speak but holds his tongue. The chaiwala steps into the street and shouts for the boy. The child looks into her perplexed eyes with fear on his face. He rushes back up the tea shop steps and the chaiwala gives him a slap. He scowls at Sister Shanti and she scowls in return. As he goes back to his perch over the street, Sister wonders at what has just transpired. This has been a Dispatch Publishing production of Little Flower, written by Ted Oswald and performed by Zara Jane Nakui. Text copyright 2017 by Ted Oswald. Music by Kevin McLeod, used by permission. If you have enjoyed this production, please consider rating and reviewing this audiobook at audible.com and on goodreads.com. 